Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This coming Tuesday will mark the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Apollo 11 mission, which saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin step off the landing craft and onto the surface of the moon. Global News will, next Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, air its documentary focusing on Canada's contribution to the Apollo 11 success, and the uh, title of the documentary is The Moon Landing and the Maple Leaf. Mike Armstrong from Global News worked on and uh, was involved very directly in the preparation of the moon landing and the maple leaf. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hey, Mike. Good afternoon. First of all, I love the story about your personal involvement with uh, Apollo 11, although you didn't see the thing go down, but you were on the way. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I, I spoke to David St. Jacques, the astronaut this week, uh, who was born January 6, 1970. So he wasn't around for it. And I was born on the 9th, a few days later. But both of our mothers were pregnant at the time of Apollo 11, which doesn't mean you weren't still inspired by it over the last 50 years. Uh, and my parents walked away from Apollo 11, watching it on television with a bunch of family. Uh, and they named me after Michael Collins, the third person in Apollo 11. So that's how I got the Michael. The Armstrong was already predestined from my father. Uh, and apparently my middle name came very close to being Buzz or Aldrin. So, uh, Edwin, excuse me. You know, I suspect that probably happened with a lot of people around the world. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I had a computer science class once with 15 people, and there were five Michaels. And there you go. That takes care of it. Now, this is a really interesting concept, fascinating concept, because we have this massive international, uh, this, this historic moment in time. Uh, by the way, I saw it take place. Yeah. I was in a cottage north of Montreal in the Laurentians on a lake with some friends. I would, I'd just gotten my driver's license and, and had my first hot car. And uh, I decided to drive up there. You know, we drove everywhere, everywhere. I lived in the car. But that was so fascinating. And and to have this, because we'd, we'd seen the, the Gemini mission. Uh, we'd seen all the Apollo flights. And to then be there for this for this landing on the moon of two human beings was just mind numbing to actually see it happen, and and to know now more than than I did before, and we'll find out in the documentary. Canada had a very specific role to play in this. Yeah, not not through any sort of Canadian space agency because this predated the space agency right. by like a decade and a half. Um, that didn't come along until uh, far later. But there were Canadians, individuals that were directly involved and had massive, important contributions to make. I mean, they say that there were 400,000 people involved, and, and we're talking about sort of Canadians sprinkled about here and there, not in huge numbers. But if you look at who they were, they were important. They, they played important roles. Well, like the, uh, the Montreal company that, had a, that made the landing gear for the Lunar Lander. Talk to us about that, please. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a place I've driven by a hundred times, and I never knew that, you know, the legs for the lunar lander, the all these vessels, the spaceships that landed on the moon, they had their legs manufactured in Longueuil, Quebec, so just uh, off-island, just to the uh, east of Montreal. 
And basically, Grumman uh, was a company out in Long Island, New York. They were contracted to do most of the design and build the lunar lander. But when it came time to mill the legs out of this aluminum alloy, they had trouble finding a a company um, to do it in the States. They had a relationship with a company called uh, Eru, and um, they called Eru and said, are you guys interested? And apparently, (laughs) Eru jumped at it, the chance to be a part of history. And they were milled right there on the factory floor uh, just outside Montreal. And I, I spoke to one of the inspectors who... He's been retired for about 10 years now, but he was the guy that was responsible for looking at the legs and making sure that they fit the specifications. And he said, I didn't know what we were making was for the moon. And he's like, <laughs> and he literally said, and had they told me, I wouldn't have believed them anyway. <laughs> it's a fascinating story. And, and where are those legs now? That's, that, that's kind of the coolest part. So the, the, when you see that lunar lander come down and land and the legs land and then Neil Armstrong walks down the ladder that's attached to the Canadian-made leg, and, and he steps off the pad at the bottom. Then he gets back in when it's all over, and imagine those legs that he's just come down. They become the launch pad for ascent. So once they, they take off again from the, the lunar surface, they le- left behind the legs. So there are literally six sets of these legs built in Montreal still sitting on the moon today. And you don't get to see them from Earth, even with the best telescopes. They're really small. We're not talking about much here. But NASA did a flyover in 2012, and that's the best picture I've seen, where they sort of fly over um, the Sea of Tranquility, and you see uh, the lunar excuse me the, the lunar lander legs still sitting there 50 years later. Pretty neat. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Now, when, when you started out with this, with this project, did you have any sense of uh, how how you'd go about finding Canadian connections with the Apollo 11. Yeah, we, we kind of thought we would just sort of talk about the Canadian connections and reach out to some of the astronauts and the NASA people uh, to sort of fill out the story. And then it turned out, no, we had plenty of Canadians to talk to. We didn't have to bother the NASA folks. So we got a couple of Canadian historians to fill in some of the spaces, but we got people who were directly involved. I mean, we tracked down a gentleman, Brian Herb, still living in, in Houston, who is one of the original Avro Aero engineers who was sort of uh, recruited right after the Avro project was canceled, and he's been living in the States ever since. Uh, he, he worked on the heat shielding on Mercury, then he worked on heat shielding on Apollo, then he worked on the, in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory when they brought back, back the moon rocks. He was right there for that. Uh, just fascinating, and, and he's still living down there, which doesn't mean he's not still partly Canadian because he kept his Canadian citizenship and was actually the Canadian Space Agency's contact in Houston for uh, several years as well. Um, so that's just one of the guys we ran into. And then um, one, another gentleman, Owen Maynard, has passed away, but his son, uh, who moved back to Canada, is incredibly passionate about his father's legacy. And he is a great character in the documentary. And we're so uh, lucky to have tracked him down and that he cooperated with us and shared with us all sorts of interesting uh, documents and models that his father collected. And then lastly, in, in sort of watching a bunch of compelling video of the astronauts coming back to Earth and then uh, walking into the mobile quarantine facility and stuff, and they just came across a little article about how the doctor that was locked up with them uh, in quarantine for 18 days was Canadian, originally from Vancouver Island. Not something I knew. And we tracked him down to Belton, uh, Texas, just south of Dallas, um, and flew down to see him, and he could not have been nicer, share, and shared his story. I mean, and it's just fascinating. 
Okay, can we talk about uh, what what he what he smuggled into? Is it okay <laughs> yeah, to do that? And, and he was pretty open about it. Yeah. Uh, basically, here's a guy <laughs> who. Well, I'll go back just a little bit further. They didn't know that whether the astronauts might bring back something dangerous, sort of a, a bacteria or a moon germ that could threaten the Earth. If you remember the book and the movie Andromeda Strain. You know, I, I remember those discussions and those concerns that was talked about uh, very directly in, in news and, and on programs like this. Yeah, well, they, they were fairly sure that there wouldn't be a problem. But nobody could say it was impossible, and so they realized we have to take every precaution we possibly can. Some of them were a little weird, like they threw some of the spacesuits into the water, thinking, well, that'll take care of them. Not exactly the best thing to do, but anyway. But they set up this quarantine facility, and a Canadian doctor was picked to be inside the quarantine facility with the astronauts. I mean, that's kind of a neat thing. Imagine these three guys, the most interesting human beings on the planet, can't even argue that, and this guy gets locked up with them for 18 days, the people everybody wants to talk to. But to get into there, in case there were moon germs, he had to sign something saying, if there's a problem, he'll be in that quarantine for the rest of his life. Uh, they were given, there were five of them in the quarantine facility. They were given four body bags because they knew the last guy wouldn't be able to put himself in a body bag. And they were told that if there is a huge problem, we'll dig a hole, push the quarantine facility in, and we'll bury it. That was sort of the plan. But fortunately for Mr. Bill Carpentier, uh, nothing happened, and there were no moon germs. But he's got the best story I've ever heard. The president comes out onto the Hornet, the ship that's picked up the, the astronauts, the mobile quarantine facilities there, and it's locked up tight. The president has a conversation over microphones and, uh, uh, with the astronauts through a little window, and this gentleman, Bill Carponce, the Canadian's just behind the astronauts, actually. So they have this incredible day where they've come back, they've spoken to the president, all this stuff, they have to take blood samples. They have to hand over the moon rock samples, everything. But they get a little bit of downtime. And Dr. Bill Carpentier had smuggled in a bottle, just enough to make <laughs> martinis. And he poured drinks for everybody at the end of the day, after dinner, after all the work was done. And he says, that's when I toasted them. He said, uh, guys, you went to the moon and back. What a great to, story. To you was the toast, he said. What a great story. Uh, Mike, I just want to go back to something that you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and that was um, the uh, the Avro Arrow connection. That plane was such an incredible, so incredibly ahead of its time. There were people who said just a few years ago that it would still be a competitive fighter airplane today, but it was shut down. And those those the the, the people the the engineers who built the Avro Arrow they were very attractive to NASA, weren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we had a historian from the Canadian Aviation and uh, Space Museum who said basically the worst thing that happened to Avro was the best thing to happen to NASA. They were able to pick up at a time when NASA's trying to expand and they're looking for engineers. All of a sudden, one of the best projects uh, in North America, as far as aviation went, freed up all its best and brightest. So they came up within literally within days of that Black Friday when people were uh, thrown out of work, um, NASA recruiters started reaching out. Within weeks, they were actually in Canada doing job interviews and then making uh, job offers to the point where Owen Maynard was uh, one of the first engineers hired in the, the gr a group of 25 that was hired right away. Within two months of being thrown out of work on the Avro project, he and his family were all already living in the States. That gives you an idea of how quickly uh, everything happened. They'd already, they already had their green card. 
they'd done their security checks, their uh, medical checks and everything, and they were all they'd been moved into the States. NASA wanted them, and NASA made it happen right away. Uh, John Kennedy said very early in the 60s, we're going to have somebody on the moon by the end of this decade, and they were going to make that happen. So, uh, so, so we have this informal, in a way, connection with Apollo 11, the Canadian connection, but there were also the astronauts to come and the more formal relationship with the Canada Space Agency and the Canada Arm. But what about the uh, what about the astronauts, the Canadian astronauts who followed? What, how were they? How inspired were they by by Apollo 11? Well, when you were just telling your story about being in a cottage, I was thinking of Chris Hadfield because Chris Hadfield, we we met him and talked to him about what it meant, what Apollo 11 meant to him, and he said he was nine years old, about to become ten. And he was at a cottage, and he watched the lunar landing. He watched Neil Armstrong step onto the moon, and he said that changed everything. He said as a nine-year-old, he knew that he wanted to be an astronaut, and he said after that date, after uh, the 20th of July, 1969, he said every decision he ever took about his life was based on getting himself to space. So you couldn't be more uh, inspired Mark Garneau, we spoke to him as well. He was uh, on a, a boat sailing in the English Channel on his way to London. He only listened to it on the radio, but he said he was out there looking at the stars going, we are in space. It's unbelievable. And then we spoke to uh, the Governor General, Judy Payette, who is a bit uh, younger than the, those two astronauts, and so she didn't remember Apollo 11, but she remembers extremely clearly uh, the later Apollo missions, and sitting in the gymnasium, she says, I remember the television. I remember the stand the television was on. And I remember the astronauts and the, the Jeep-like vehicle that they drove around in, in Apollo 16. She, she said, I wanted to be like them. And she said, interesting the way she put it. She said, it didn't matter that they were men and I was a woman, it, uh, a little girl actually at the time. It didn't matter that they spoke English, the language that she didn't understand. She just, and it didn't matter that they were American and she was Canadian. She said, as a little girl, she knew that's what she wanted to do. It's amazing when you hear stories like that. It, and you know they come true. It really is amazing. Yeah, yeah well, that's what if you, these people are just incredibly dedicated as right. well. So when they get that inspiration and the ability to really point themselves in that direction, they follow through. How long did it take you to put this uh, documentary together? Well, we've been working on it for several weeks. Uh, we had some great, uh, I mean, just consider myself so lucky. You know, in November I went to... Uh, uh, I was in Belgium for the 100th anniversary of the First World War, and I got to tell the stories of Canadians that were there 100 years ago when the war ended and what they had done. And, and a part of being a journalist is talking to people about what happened today, and so you, so that everybody's informed. But I also like to go back at, in history and remind people of what Canadians have done before. So that's why, I mean, I've been incredibly lucky to be able to uh, devote myself to this, for sure, uh, full-time for the last month and uh, putting it together. Well, I'm so looking forward to it, and you are an excellent journalist. I've followed your work for a long time, not blowing smoke here. I really, really appreciate what you do for the credibility of our industry. I I just want to add this. So I I, I did make it up to the cottage, right, from Montreal, (laughs) okay? So (laughs) I made it to the cottage, right? So now it's over, and uh, they basically kicked me out. Uh, A few of us there, and they told us, you can't stay here, you have to go home. So it's late at night. Apollo 11 found the moon. <laughs> I couldn't find my way back to Montreal. Oh, no. <laughs> I kept going north. Ended up in some little road somewhere in, in, in somebody's driveway. <laughs> like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Ouch. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. I'll ask you a question about that night. Yeah. Was there any sort of an inkling, a thought in your mind? Because I spoke to my mom, and she said that watching it with her uncle, her uncle sat there saying, this is fake. And I'm wondering whether anybody in your group no. thought that, that. No, no, no. Eh? No, not at all. No. I'm glad to hear that. No. No, and I know there are people out there who still think it's fake. Well, you know, let them deal with it. Uh, No, no no thought of of that at all. So next Saturday, 7 p.m. Eastern, on uh, Global Television, Global News documentary, The Moon Landing and the Maple Leaf. Mark Armstrong, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure. All the best. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.